we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 tonight. Matthew chapter 5. If you so desire, uh, you could also put your fingers in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm also going to be in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to be in, you know, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. So, yeah, just trust me. Okay. <laughs> Let's start in Matthew 5 verse 9. Matthew 5 verse 9. Probably something you've heard before or many times uh, if you've been in the church for more than, I'd probably say a year, you know, and if you've, you know, read at least the first few chapters of the first gospel of the Bible, and you've probably read this verse. Um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go through these three verses. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. What does you mean? Us, right? Blessed are you, not other people, you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. We're going to pray. Lord, uh, we ask for your favor. Uh, We ask that uh, you would help us navigate your word with, um, Lord, not only with uh, attention, God, but also open hearts, Jesus. I pray that we would not grow calloused to your Holy Spirit, God, that we would be able to uh, look at your word with a pure heart and be able to uh, see ourselves. As it says in Galatians, Lord, that it is like a mirror, that when we look onto it, Lord, we, we see our flaws, we see our shortcomings, but more than that, we see your glory. We see how much better you are than us. And we see that you are willing to go before us as an example and a forerunner for righteousness. And so, God, may we look onto you tonight and you tonight only. That before we are introspective and looking at our flaws, that we would first look at your holiness. So help us with that, Jesus. And help us with, um, uh, help Pastor Rahab, Lord, and give him rest. Um, revitalize him, Lord. May tonight just be the best night's sleep he's ever had, Lord. Um, and I pray, Lord, for our community, for our state and our nation. Lord, that by your spirit, you would mobilize your people to be the good on this earth. And so help us navigate this, Lord. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. 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 So guys, uh, this starts off with blessed are the peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons and for those of you ladies in here, daughters of God, right? Sons is, it's a, it's, a, it's a term that's meant for, to describe an heir as a king gives his kingdom to his son, right? Back then, that's the terminology, but uh, we are, you are called daughters of the Lord as well. So just know that sons, and when it says that he or they, or like in, in him and stuff like that, uh, know that it's talking to men and women, right? Um, but it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, just as Christ is called son of God. 
And like many concepts of the Bible, guys, that we, we must, we must, I would say other than grace, peace is one of the most ill-interpreted subjects in the Bible. I would say that besides the concept of grace and what it means for us and how it informs the way we act and it informs the way we treat one another, I would say peace is also often misinterpreted by people. Um, because I would argue that the pursuit of peace, and this is what I'm going to argue, guys, is that the pursuit of peace is part of what incites so much violence and disruption in the world. Ironically enough, peace is what kind of creates most problems in our world. And it starts, guys, honestly, with the working definition that we have in the dictionary of peace. Um, the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary describes peace as one of two things, right? Peace is one of two things. First, its first definition, it is freedom from disturbance. Freedom from disturbance, quiet and tranquility. So when you think of peace, you think of meadows, right? A night without kids screaming, right? You think of peace. You think of, it's something different for all of you. Peace, it's, it, it, it is a release from disturbance. It's quiet. It's tranquility. Nothing is infringing upon your perfect bubble. Right? That is the first working definition of peace in the dictionary. The second one is freedom from or the cessation of war or violence. So that's the second definition. That's usually what we think of as peace, right? When we think of peace among nations, when we think of peace among people groups, we think of the absence of conflict, right? We think of the absence of, uh, of persecution, the absence of war, the absence of fighting, whether it be arguments, whether it be in marriages, whether it be in politics, whether it be uh, among people groups and among church members or whatever it may be, we think of absence or cessation from war or violence. And in these working definitions of peace, um, we already have issues. We already have a lot of issues because, listen, I find my quiet time and I find my first working definition of peace, my uh, freedom from disturbance, my quiet and tranquility, I find that out in the ocean. Right? That's something I enjoy, something my father enjoys, something that Pastor John enjoys, right? We find peace out in the ocean, out in the waves, you know, and, and, and we like being out there. We, we like being alone when there's waves and there's the ocean and it's nice and the sun's just peeking out, but it's still kind of dark, right? It's still kind of dark and there's this foggy haze, but we can see the sun coming out and there's there's, there's nice sets that are just a little bit head high. And so that's, that's peace for me. But for you or for other people, that sounds terrifying. Because you think of sharks and you think of seaweed and you think of cold and you think of a huge wave swallowing, swallowing you up into a pit of breathlessness and despair, right? So, so what, is, what is tranquil and peaceful for me may not be tranquil and peaceful for you. We have different working definitions of peace already, right? So as far as the quiet and tranquility goes, already we're going to have issues. What, where you find peace, maybe it's at the gym, maybe it's taking a nice walk, maybe whatever it may be for you, it's different for somebody else, Right? 
Your husband may have a different working definition of peace. He, he, he may like to work on something. He might like have to have a project, right? Maybe for you or, or for your children, it's different. Something like we all have different aspects of peace. And in the midst of that, what's quiet time and peace for you and then what's quiet time and peace for them might actually start arguments, huh? Right? It might actually start arguments in the household, right? I know peace for me and peace for my wife can sometimes be very, very different, Right? And so that can, that can cause a little bit of conflict. And so then we have our second um, working definition of peace, which is freedom for, from a secession of war and violence and crime and all of the such, right? Now, and for some people, freedom from violence and war means that everyone agrees with one worldview or political system. And then there's the other side that thinks you need to agree with their political system or worldview. Sound familiar? I think it's a little closer to home than you may think. We have like six days, right? And we have two people. We have two people who come up here and they claim to bring peace and prosperity to our nation. Two people. And, and, for, and for most of you, I, you know, just... I know our church, right? For most of you, it's one specific side where you're like, this is how peace and prosperity shall be, uh, shall happen. And then for another side, they're like, this is how peace and prosperity shall happen. And 50% go this way and 50% go this way. And here we have campaign rallies where people are being sucker punched and arguments are inciting and people are being arrested, protests in the streets, people being shot. Pursuit of peace creating conflict, huh? Peace polarizes. Put that one in your back pocket, right? Peace polarizes. Peace automatically polarizes us, right? That's how, that's what our nation is going through right now. We have 50% of the people saying, this is what peace means. And then we have, we have the other 50% saying, no, this is what peace means. So peace among individuals and groups of people can sometimes seem objective. Even if it isn't, it seems that way to people, right? Because we even now are cycling through our heads. You're trying to guess where my political values are right now, right? Some of you are trying to do that. Where is this guy? You know, like he's young. He must be liberal, right? And, 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 and so already like it's, it's polarizing, right? It's, it's stirring and it's stewing, right? And so we see that among individuals and groups of people, peace is hard. And so when Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers, what the heck is he talking about? What kind of peace is he talking about, right? What is this peace? And throughout scripture, the peace that God seeks is called shalom. That's the peace of God. That's, that's the peace that is often talked about in scripture. And it signifies, his working definition of shalom, signifies national or personal harmony between two parties. National or personal harmony between two parties. Harmony between people, between families, between nation, between ideologies, between, and, and the most important, and what is emphasized in scripture, is between God and man. Peace. Shalom. Often, 
talked about in scripture is the peace that we experience with God. Not that we experience with other people, not that we experience with other political parties, not that we experience uh, with our neighbors or whatever. It's mostly talked about the shalom peace between us and the Lord. And in Ephesians chapter 2, circling back to the New Testament, talking about the shalom peace, though it's a different word, it says, for he himself is our peace. He's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, listen, in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. In essence, in essence, this means that we have made this wall of separation between us and God with our sin, right? We've made this kind of wall, this barrier. Mankind kind of just is, is always with every sin, kind of putting a different brick, you know, onto the wall of separation, right? And, and, and we're putting on these bricks and, and, and we're creating this wall of separation between us and God, right? And in Colossians chapter one, verse 21, it actually describes us as that we were once enemies of God, that, that we weren't just morally neutral with God. Do you understand that? Before you came to Jesus, it wasn't this morally neutral state where you were teetering like this. It's actually you were considered an enemy of God before you were a child of God. You're one of the two. You're never in between. You're either a child of God or an enemy of God. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says that. Neutrality doesn't exist, but through the cross of Christ... It says that in Ephesians chapter 2 that he has breaking down the middle wall of separation. That Christ in his redeeming work on the cross has abolished hostility, not only between us and God, but us and one another. Because listen, we may have our issues, like I'm an American, but I have more in common with a Christian from Iran than I do with an atheist in America, right? There's not only the separation that has been broken down between me and God, but Christ has also made us one in one body of Christ, right? And that's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome, in my opinion, right? It's it's pretty awesome that what God has done through the cross is he's taken your sin, he's taken your sin, he's taken my sin, and he's he's thrown it on the cross, and he's he's done away with it. He has been our mediator, and he has said, listen, your, your sins are atoned for, and they're forgiven. And now you are all part of my body. You are part of my church. There's not only zero hostility between me and you, but now you and all the brothers and sisters around you. Whether American or from the United Kingdom, whether Republican or Democrat, male or female, white or black, 
there is this wall of hostility that has been broken down now because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. The work of Christ on the cross has eliminated that sort of barrier and has created shalom. The shalom that is often talked about, the peace that is talked about in the Old Testament, um, contrary to what we may what we may perceive in the Old Testament, it often talks about pursuing peace and it talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Zion, right? Zion is often talked about as this perfect will of God, right? This, this will of God on earth. And, and, and what much of the prophets, not all, but what much of the prophets are alluding to is the peace of Christ, which is going to come. The God in his perfect kingdom and his perfect character is going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Zion is at hand, right? The work of Christ on the cross, as a result of this, we are to follow in Christ's example. He has broken down these walls, right? He has broken down these barriers. We have access, guys, we have access to Jesus, the creator of the universe. I'm like, we act like that's not special, but it totally is, okay? Like, I, 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 don't you hate that? Don't you hate how that's not special anymore? You know, like, we hear that like, yeah, it's church, right? You know, yeah, like, we have access to God. We pray to God. Guys, the one who has counted every atom in this entire universe knows you. And you can know him. That's insane. That is amazing. It, it is amazing how, and, and that great of a distance that we have created between us and God is bridged by Christ being the ultimate peacemaker. And so now as us, as called his children, we get to be peacemakers. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, following in suit from the son of God, Jesus Christ, that we get to follow in the example of Christ Jesus by being peacemakers. Breaking down those walls is what it means to be a peacemaker. Breaking down the walls as Christ broke down the walls. Creating common ground by self-sacrificial service and love of God. That's cool. That means that peace is no longer achieved by one person lording their ideology or over another person, rather self-sacrificial love and care and dying to oneself. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Peace between us and God is so important. So important. Peace among individuals and groups of people. How did Christ break down these walls, right? Because here's the thing. We can say be a peacemaker. We can say go be like Jesus, right? And we'll go and we'll act like Jesus. But it's like as far as specifically peacemaking goes, we're talking about peacemaking. I, I just want to be super specific tonight. I want to make sure that you don't go from here, you know, getting something totally different. We're talking about peacemaking, right? How? How do we do this? We look by how Christ broke down those walls, those middle walls of separation. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, it says in Philippians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, you can, but I'll read it to you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8 says this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Automatically hard, right? Automatically stinks for me, at least, right? But also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not 
count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Peace between us and God is so important, is so important because in that relationship, we learn how to be peacemakers. God has made it available for us to be with him and for us to experience relationship with him and for us to know him. And that's really important that we experience that peace because it's going to teach us how to be peacemakers in our communities because we learn that selflessness and self-sacrificial love is what being a peacemaker is all about. So to be a peacemaker as Jesus is a peacemaker means to pursue restored relationships through self-sacrifice and humble service to others. It says that Christ humbled himself even to the point of dying on the cross. And that we have to have the same mind among us as Christ Jesus, not counting any sort of glory, any sort of status as something to be grasped, right? Because I feel like once I reach kind of a new level of holiness, right? If that's even a thing, right? But like if I overcome a certain sin and I don't struggle with something anymore, for some reason in my stupid heart, I think it makes me better than other people. I think that that's, that is a status symbol to be grasped. Oh, I don't struggle with that type of lust. A little bit better than those people, right? Right? Oh, I don't drink that much anymore. Like, better than those people, right? And, and, and so I see it as this level. Not you. Not you. You're better than me. But me. I see holiness as some sort of elevation in status, right? And, and what, what Paul is saying in Philippians, he's saying Christ didn't consider that status something to be held dear. He didn't consider that, but rather to, to create a peaceful relationship between us and God humbled himself to dying on the cross. He was the initiator of peace, guys. He didn't wait for us to ask for it. He didn't cross his arms and say, well, you better repent. He was the initiator of peace through self-sacrifice. There's a political science term. It's called positive peace. I've talked about it a couple times before. Uh, I study political science very heavily, and it's very crazy, right? Um, but a, a term that I love, and if, if I hadn't learned anything, I'm glad I learned this term because it's called positive peace. And what it means is that actually the areas of the world— that are so consumed uh, with war and with crime, uh, with civil war and bad governments and corrupt regimes, just so happen to be the same areas that don't have access to clean water, right? And, the, and that don't have access to proper education. They're also the same places that don't have access to the amount of food that we have access to. Right? And, and so it's no coincidence, right, that when we go into these places and we bring water and we bring food and we bring access to all of these things and we teach them how to use it, that all of a sudden the place gets a little more peaceful and they stop shooting each other. 
And what's really cool about that is that it requires an initiator, an agent for peace. That it's not just going to cease by you telling them, hey, stop, right? It requires a third party, an initiator of peace, right? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus said to a group of his servants, he, he used a parable where, where he said, uh, he said when, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And these people were like, wait, God, we didn't do any of those things. What are you talking about? We never even saw you. And he said, whatever, whatever you did unto the least of these, you did unto me. So come and enter into my rest. And, and, and so isn't that beautiful? Being agents of peace, Right? That's why it's so important to support our missionaries, right? That's why it's so incredibly important. That's why it's so important if, if God has called you into missions, that you just obey that, right? So peace is not achieved by making people submit to your will, right? Because Jesus didn't do that, right? Right? Arguments aren't settled by you saying submit, right? It's not, it's not you belaboring your point and arguing your point, but coming up from behind them and loving them into peace with Jesus. And it's still hard because we think, at least I think, that this world operates on this give and take scale. I, 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 I kind of somehow believe it's the capitalist inside of me that believes that everything operates on a give and take right? It, it, it's something inside of me that, you know, I just really believe in it, but it doesn't apply to everything where I think, well, if they want what I have to give them, they have to give me a little something first, right? Where it's this give and take. Hey, you give me my money, I give you your product, right? It, it's, it's, it's that type of reciprocity that we expect sometimes. And I think that's sometimes how we approach peacemaking, maybe in your marriages, maybe in your friendships where you're like, well, if, if they give me a little and they say sorry first, then we'll have a dialogue right? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, if they come to me first, then maybe I'm willing to budge a little bit. I'll be willing to talk, but they have to, you know, they have to come to me. And Jesus didn't do that, right? He came. We didn't ask him to. He came, though. He came. The gospel teaches us to give without any condition or expectation of reciprocation. That's what the gospel teaches us, that we give without expecting anything in return. That's what it means to be a peacemaker, that we give and we give, and maybe they'll return. But no matter what, so much as it depends on me, Romans chapter 12, live peaceably with all men. As much as it depends on me, not the other person. As much as it depends on me. And it was so important to Jesus. Peace between two parties was so important to Jesus that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he says that even if you're in the middle of worshiping at church, it was making sacrifice in the temple, but let's say it's worshiping at church, right? Even when you're in the middle of worshiping God, you're in the middle of singing, and Pastor John's really just filled with the Spirit right now, and his hair looks great, and so the Holy Spirit's just here, right? And, 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 and you're just like, yes, Lord, yes, and, and the words, and church on fire, and Lord, with one desire to glorify no other name, yes, Lord, I want to seek you. And then in the back of your head, you had a huge falling out with your wife before you came here. And you're like, oh, Lord, no, I love you. 
It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, that if you have a quarrel with your brother, even when you're in the middle of worshiping, you ought to leave and go settle it. That's how much peace, that's how, much, that's how important peace is to Jesus. That he says, listen, even in the middle of worship, you ought to drop what you're doing and go and pursue peace with your brother. Super important. Super important to him. And we must remember that peace does not mean you have won the argument or convinced someone of your position. It means that you and the one you are arguing with are both being won over to Christ. It's not about one idea dominating over the other, but by both, even if it's just a baby step, getting closer to Jesus. Even if it's just by one simple act of, do you know what? I disagree with you, but I just want to encourage you really quick. I see this and this in you, and God loves it. That one little, that's a baby step towards Jesus. So it's, it's not about winning the argument anymore. It's about winning people over to Christ. And our reward for peacemaking is that we will be associated with the name of the Son of God. That's amazing. That is incredible. We get to be a part of God's restorative work on earth. We get that title of a son or daughter of God. I want to be known like that, you know? I want to be known by that, that guy. He's from some other universe, right? He's, he's from a different planet, the way he talks to people, right? No one says that about me. I want them to say that about me, though. I want them to say that about me. I want them to say, do you know the way Zach talks to people? That's, that's something totally different. Some people, though, um, reject that peace, huh? <laughs> Just because you're a peacemaker doesn't mean people are receiving that peace, you know? And I think that's the hardest part, is that no matter how many good intentions we may have, no matter what kind of restorative peacemaking project we may have in store for our community, it's not always received very well. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Paul says this, he says, Repaying no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Right? Like there's certain things that should be above reproach, whether they're a Christian or non-Christian. Because there's some things you're going to do that like non-Christians are going to be like, ah, that's weird, right? But there's some things that are universally honorable by all people, right? Civility, kindness, gentleness, self-control, basically all the fruits of the Spirit goodness. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, listen, this is cool. If your enemy is, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, what? Come on. Give him something to drink, right? You know it. For by doing so, this is kind of cool. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
if you get some, like if, if you, if you're just this kind of sadistic person, you know, and you just need them to suffer a little bit, know that your kindness is making them suffer. Right. You know, this is where the killing with kindness comes from. You know, it's, it's kind of like, Hey, my enemy's hungry. Here's a sandwich. Right. Like, and, and they hate it. Right. They hate it. But as much as it depends on you, there's peace. If there's not peace, it's coming from them, not from you. That's what this passage means. It means that you are not the source of contention here. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is yelling overcome by more yelling? Is a nasty Facebook post overcome by another nasty Facebook post? Can I get an amen? Is a passive-aggressive comment overcome by another passive-aggressive comment? No, it's not. Is dishonor overcome by more dishonor? Is gossip overcome by more gossip? We know these things. We know these things, but we're still caught up in this. I'm still caught up in this, where I'm always trying to overcome evil with evil. Because I think because I'm a Christian and because I have this right perspective that somehow my evil acts are more righteous. And I'm convinced of that, especially when it pertains to sensitive subjects like politics, especially when it pertains to issues of morality. When I, when I think I have the moral high ground, I tend to get tenacious just because I have the right position. Just because you have the right position doesn't mean you get to use evil words. And, and, and I'm talking to you, I mean, I'm talking to me more than I'm talking to you, right? When I feel dishonored by people, I just dishonor them back and that stinks and I shouldn't do that. Peacemaking does not involve sacrificing the truth though. We know that, right? It means we don't just roll over and say, oh, you're right, you know? It, when, when someone's clearly wrong, they're clearly wrong, Yeah? And we must stand for certain moral absolutes. We cannot give in um, to the secular humanism that wants to overpower us and say, there's no moral absolutes. Well, and we can't just lay over and say, maybe you're right, you know. Is that an absolute, right? And we love to say that too. Like, do you believe that absolutely, right? Passive aggressive comment, right? And, And we lay over. It doesn't mean we just say you're right in order to stop the argument. And, and peacemaking doesn't necessarily mean you stop having the dialogue. And it doesn't mean you stop, uh, you stop advocating for your position. And it doesn't mean that you stop doing good. It doesn't mean those things. It, we don't just roll over. And I know that when I look at how much the gospel can create so much good in this world, I get excited Being saved, guys, being saved is like being a part of the greatest peacemaking project this world has ever known. And and, and when I really contemplate the word and how this can affect the lives of people and individuals around me, when when I see this and I'm like, oh, people are going to be encouraged, relationships are going to be restored, the hungry are going to be fed, and everyone's going to love me for it. That's how I think because I see how much good this can do. You see how much good Christ is for the community and the world around you. And we get excited and we get gung-ho about it. And sometimes I think, we think, 
people are just going to love us if we could just properly explain to them another time. No. No. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, those, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoicingly be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So, uh, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you really look at the gospel, when you really look at the gospel, you see just how much good it can do if everyone just turned from their selfish desires and started doing things for the glory of God and the benefit of their neighbors, you and I know this. You and I know if everyone just practiced these things, there would be no more war and strife and divorce and there'd be no more of this ugliness that we see. But you learn pretty quick that not everyone's as eager as you to get on board with these things. I learned pretty quick, being a pastor even, that people in the church are not always as eager to get on board with this peacemaking project. They more want to argue about how young the pastor is and how he shouldn't wear jeans on a Sunday morning, right? You learn pretty quick that people get hung up on things. And when you go out into the world, when you go out into the world, you learn even quicker. Uh, people aren't on board. And there was a, um, and you learn pretty quick also, guys, that uh, to other people, this peacemaking project is rather radical and inappropriate. They're going to try and convince you that what you're doing is inappropriate. <laughs> that, like, you're the indecent one, you know? And, and uh, there's a study done by the Barna Group. Very awesome group. Um, they, they do a lot of really great statistical analysis on society, and they do um, some really, really good work. Um, they're they're a, uh, a group that surveys, um, and they did this survey uh, of what it means to secular people. So, so this isn't the Christian. They, they didn't, nobody who's Christian, everyone who's not affiliated, not affiliated with the church at all, they wanted to know what makes a religious extremist. In their, in their minds, right? So this was a study done, a huge sample of over 100,000 people, right? And they wanted to know what makes an extremist an extremist, right? Because what do we think when we think of extremists, guys? Come on, what's our natural Islam, right? Yeah, that, that's what we think. Let's just say it, ISIS, right? We, we, we think about that. When we think about extremists, we think ISIS chopping off Christians' heads, right? Like we, we think about those things, yes? That's extremist to us. Want to know what's extremist to the world? You are extremist according to this sample size, which is a very large sample size across the entire United States. If you attempt to convert others to, their, to your faith. Once again, this is also clumped in with the group of chopping off heads, okay? You're considered extremist if you attempt to convert others to your faith. If you quit a good-paying job to pursue missions work in another country. 
Once again, same as chopping off a Christian's hand and killing babies, okay? That's, that's on the same, they see this as radical Islam. They see this on the same level. Wait until marriage to have sex. Regularly donate money to a religious community. Reading the Bible silently in public. Attend church on a weekly basis. This one was crazy. Volunteer to help people in need. Even the most basic of Christian practices are considered extremist in our culture. So even if you want to like silently read your Bible at Starbucks, I just want you to know there's people around you that are like, freak. So we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay. And we need to understand that, I think. I, I, I think this is really useful information because it helps me when I'm talking to someone about Jesus and they react to me like I'm Al-Qaeda, right? This is, this is, I'm being serious. This is really useful information as we speak to people, as we talk to them about Jesus, because apparently uh, over 60% of U.S. adults think it is insanely radical to attempt to tell other people about your faith. And I have to be aware of this. You have to be aware of this while we're peacemaking in our culture. That they're going to not be on board with this. We need to be okay with it. We need to know that even the most basic of Christian practices are going to be met with resistance. And we need to resolve that blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice how Jesus said on my account. Notice how Jesus said on my account, because let something be clear. Some of the persecution we face is warranted. Is it not? Some people are just annoying, right? Right? Some people are just annoying, right? First uh, Peter, Peter says this, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody. Let me just reread that list really quick, okay? Let none of you suffer, so no, let none of you be persecuted for the following reasons. You should not be persecuted for the following reasons. Like, this is something you shouldn't do, and if you're persecuted for this, you deserve it, right? That's what Peter's saying. If you're a murderer, right? So if you're murdering for your faith, that's bad, okay? If you're a thief, if you're stealing for your faith, do you know what, do you know what persecution is warranted? When prosperity preachers are stealing money from their congregants. That, that persecution is warranted. Peter says that. As a thief, let no one be persecuted. If you're being persecuted for that, you deserve it, right? As an evildoer, whatever that. You know, if you're doing something wrong and an atheist is like, hey, you know, it's all oh, persecution, right? No, it's not. You stop doing evil things, you know? Or as a busybody in other people's matters. <laughs> Whoa. So that is on the list. So being super nosy and prying into people's personal business and gossiping, that's in the same clump as murdering and thievery to Peter. And I think Peter as a pastor is kind of just throwing that in there, you know? 
He's throwing that in there saying, let none of you be persecuted for these things, for being up in people's business where you don't deserve to be, right? For trying to really get personal with people when you really haven't invested any time in them, you know? Trying to know the depths and the secrets of their heart when you meet them at Albertsons, right? Saying, let none of you be persecuted for these things, right? And, but he says this, yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're acting like Jesus, they're going to treat you like Jesus. People were not always kind to him, huh? They resisted what he was doing. But it still says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Meaning that even in the midst of persecution, he had joy. He had happiness, which is what blessed means. It means, oh, how happy are those. The world will not stop being bitter because you tell them not to be bitter. Blessed are those, oh, how happy are those who are persecuted in the name of Jesus because that means that you're doing the work of Jesus. If you've never been persecuted for your faith, if you've never been persecuted like Jesus in some small way, you're probably not acting like Jesus, right? Jesus mentions uttering evil words and false accusations, right? Have you noticed that? That that he says... Blessed are you when they revile you and when they persecute and they utter all kinds of evils against you. Notice how Jesus says words. He uses words. Because I think what's really cool, you know, Paul said this. He said, like, what are you going to do to me? Like, if they kill me, I'm with Jesus, right? So there's no threatening with violence and killing, right? Because we just get to be with the Lord. But I think Jesus knew, I think Jesus understood that a fear of words, a fear of words from people are usually more scary than what they can do to you. At least in my, in my life, guys, I'm much more scared of what people say about me than whatever physical thing they can do to me. I live in much more fear of criticism than I do of violence And I think Jesus knew that. So he's like, blessed are you when they utter all kinds of evil against you. I think he knew that words are going to hurt more than anything. You need to understand, guys, that they aren't persecuting you. They're persecuting Jesus. They're persecuting Christ. Because you represent the dying of their lifestyle. Do you get that? When you tell them to come to Christ, what you're saying is give up control of your life and give it to God. And when you challenge people's control, right? Bitterness ensues, persecution ensues because people love their control. I love it. It's hard for Jesus to constantly strip away my self-will, right? So when I'm telling other people to do the same, I have to understand what I'm asking for them to do is topple the empire that they have created for themselves. 
I'm asking for them to to destroy the kingdom that they have built up that's meant to glorify their name and replace it with a kingdom that glorifies the name of their creator. They're not always willing to get on board with that. God symbolizes the death to their selves and their lives. And we have to understand that when we're talking to them. It doesn't mean we shy away from the message because we know that as they die, Christ will live and they will experience life and life more abundant. Amen? So we do not shy away from the message, but we understand when they backbite and when they persecute us, when they utter all kinds of evil, it is against Jesus who wants to take away their kingdom, not against you. Not against you. If you built hospitals and sought restored relationships and exercised servant leadership in your workplace without mentioning the name of Jesus, they would praise you. But the second you build a hospital or seek restored relationships or exercise servant leadership in the workplace and you mention Jesus, now it's crazy, huh? I do something nice for my neighbor and I say, have a nice day. Great. I do something nice for my neighbor. I say, hey, God bless you. All of a sudden it's like, whoa, man, I don't want your basket, right? That's the litmus test here. They're resisting Christ, not you. And my ego is so fragile. My ego is so fragile that sometimes my need to be liked may take over. And unintentionally, when I do good things, I act as though I don't know Jesus. Because I'm afraid that my ego will somehow be damaged. I'm afraid that they'll persecute me. I'm afraid that in my peacemaking, I'll lose friends or I'll lose family or I'll lose status. Maybe that's not you. But at the end of it all, I have to ask myself just one question, you know. And I think it's the question that we all have to ask ourselves sooner or later when we're faced with persecution and when we're faced with the decision to be a peacemaker for Christ and seek restored relationships by inserting Christ and elevating people. We have to ask the question, is Christ enough for us? Because I cannot convince you to endure persecution if you are not passionately in love with Jesus. Our enjoyment of him must transcend our fear of persecution. Our desire for peace in our world must exceed that of our desire to be liked by people. Our desire for the gospel to be furthered must transcend our desire for our names to be furthered. And I can't convince you to do anything good. I can't convince you to go be a peacemaker in your workplace or in your marriage or in your home or with your kids or at your job. I can't can't convince you to do these things unless you are passionately after the name of Jesus. And that's not something I can impart onto you. That's not something Pastor Rob can impart onto you. No rhetoric can, can mobilize you to just go and change the world. That, because the second you go out there, Pastor Rob or myself or Brett or Tony or John, we're not going to be there. We're not going to be there next to you and your coworkers. So I, I understand that no sermon and 
No motivational speech is going to get you to go out there and endure persecution. It must be. It must be because you are so plugged into the vine of Jesus Christ that fruit just grows. And you need to give it away and you need to share it. No sermon given by any pastor will ever replace you abiding in the love of Jesus Christ in your closet and going outside and serving people with the same love that Christ has surrounded you with. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to ask this question as you go into your work, as you go into that family situation as Thanksgiving comes up and Christmas comes up when those, there's those contrary family members that we all have your wayward kids or your brother or your sister that you've been fighting with for so many years, I challenge you, I challenge you to ask yourself the question, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough for me to endure persecution and continue to seek the peace of my family and my community even if they spit in my face in the process? Because if you're coming daily face to face with the Christ that endured the cross and the people he created spat in his face. And if you were continually looking him in the eye and spending time with him, then when people do the same thing to you, you will be able to simply say, as it was with my Lord, so it will be with me. And that in your suffering, you will continue the mission of Christ. I cannot convince you of this. It is only between you and Christ. So we're going to pray. And we're going to seek the Lord. And we're going to go out. And we're going to spend time with Jesus. And we're going to seek the peace of our nation. Right? One individual person at a time. Forget the election really quick. Do you know your neighbor's name? Forget the president for a second. Right? Forget Clinton. Forget Trump for a second. Which brother or sister have you been fighting with for years? Forget all that for just a second. Go back to it tomorrow. But right now, who's that one person you need to seek peace with? And is Christ worth enduring that persecution as you seek the peace? So that's what we're going to pray. So bow your heads with me. Father, we love you and um, we, we, we desire, we desire, Lord. I desire, Lord, to be a peacemaker, Lord. We want to be called sons of God. So, Lord, I, I just pray, Lord, that we'd, be, we'd come face to face with this concept of being a peacemaker. We'd come face to face with the reality that as, as we act like you, Lord, we will be treated like you. Oh, God, may you be enough for us. Lord, that as we sit in your presence, Lord, we would be filled enough to where we don't look to be filled by anyone else around us. Help us, Jesus. Lord, we pray for that one person we've been in conflict with. We pray for that group of people we seem to be at odds with. I pray that you would mold and shape our hearts to be more like you, Jesus who didn't consider status anything to be grasped. Lord, and I also pray for our nation. Lord, that us as Christians, Lord, in in this crazy and tumultuous and divisive time, Lord, that we'd seek the peace of your city. 
It says that you looked upon the city, Jesus, and you wept because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And you looked upon your disciples and you said, do not pray for the harvest, for the harvest is plenty, but pray for the laborers, for the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. And pray that you would help us to rise up as laborers, God, in your field. Our country, our nation is ripe for the harvest. I pray that us as peacemakers seeking the restoration of our communities, Lord, would, would be brave, Lord, with the spirit of Christ, Lord, to seek peace, seek restoration. Help us to be the initiators, not wait for people to come to us, but we go to them. I pray for these things, Lord. I pray so deeply for them. And that our nation would be restored one little community at a time. As Pastor Rob says, Lord, that it's a trickle down, Lord, that what we do here affects the nation as a whole. So, Lord, help us as individuals to seek peace. We love you. We give you this night. And it's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen, everyone.